Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Um, I'm a li- little disheveled this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Ask me why. Why, Stu? Because this is a new format for me. For us. For us. Yeah, but you've been doing it longer. I've been doing sure. the same format for eight years. Yeah, so what's different this time? No introduction. Yeah, we had that pre-recorded introduction. I hope you guys liked it. It was pretty funny, us doing <laughs> How it How many over, takes did we have? <laughs> over and over again. Uh, first we edited it, then we tried to do it, then we laughed, and then we said different <laughs> words, and then we had to redo it. But you know what? It's funny, because we are creatures of habit. And I know that these are cliches and stuff, but the older you get, the more comfortable you are with your traditions and your habits. Mm-hmm. And when something gets in the way of those things, it's unsettling. hmm so I don't know what to do. <laughs> no, I do. I know exactly what to do. But... And we have new music with that cute little whistle. And the saxophone. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. You guys part. like that? I hope you like that. So some of you may be new to joining us. This is your very first episode with us. And some of you maybe have, have been listening to us for a really long time. Um, one of the things that we're going to do a little bit differently is we're going to have topics with each podcast. We'll still have, you know, um, questions from you guys that we read and um, Stu will still go over, you know, scientific data and studies. Um, but we wanted to be able to do one segment <laughs> that people could go back and look over time. So today we're going to be talking about um, just, you know, starting from the beginning of like, what's the difference between doing a birth in the hospital and doing a birth out of the hospital, but mainly we're going to focus on home birth today. Yeah. And one of the things that we will do it either, it'll enter into this podcast or possibly the next one will be uh, more of our backstory. Yeah. We're going to do our backstory. Because some of you have been listening for a long time to the old podcast, know everything there is to know, but (laughs) uh, we hope we, we're going to grow and have new listeners and a lot of people always ask me the question, like, how did you end up doing what you're doing? And so we'll get to that because that's a, yeah. it is a fascinating story that probably will take an entire podcast to talk about it. Yeah. Um, so how was your week? What's new? What's going on in your world? Well, my week is good. I started out in the snow. I was up in the mountains. Oh, did you do any like? Snowballing. <laughs> snowballing. Is that cocaine? No, that's like throwing snowballs. <laughs> Did you do any snowballing? Yes, we did some snowballing. (laughs) You did? Yes. No sledding or um no, there were a lot of people there were a lot of families up there that came up for the day that were sliding by the lake. We were up near um uh, Crestline, California, which had just gotten a bunch of snow over the weekend. We've been having some really interesting weather here in Southern California. So it's been good. Well, relatively speaking. We can't complain <laughs> compared to people all over the world that are much colder than we are. But, That's true. What's but, cold when I say cold? Well, lows in the 40s, mm-hmm. right? Which yeah. is cold for, for Southern California. Lots of Highs only in the low 60s. So I'm sure people in my family in Minnesota or anybody in North Dakota, they'd, say, they'd, they'd be looking at us going, <laughs> those wimps. I was going to use a different word, but those wimps. I'm glad you didn't. Yeah, those wimps. All right. So, um, so that started out. I've had uh, no births this week. I don't think. Nope. We're waiting on her. We're waiting on one, you and I. Together. Mm-hmm. I've been doing a lot of stuff. I did an interview with Paul Thomas. Some of you may know who he is. He's got a new podcast out. And um, he just started. He Paul Thomas is a pediatrician. He's co-authored with my friend Jen Margulis, who wrote the, the Vaccine-Friendly Plan. And uh, we did an interview uh, a little bit about COVID vaccine in pregnancy. And that'll be coming out on his podcast. So you can just search Paul. I can't remember. There's a new podcast. I can't remember the name of it, but um, I feel bad about that. But I'll make sure that it's, we'll get it in the show notes. So I'll make a note of that. Um, and then I did a follow-up. Like last week when we recorded the podcast, we had the uh, Wel- Welsh filmmakers here. Mm-hmm. So that'll be a while before that comes out, but we'll make sure that that's, that's going on. So a lot of things are sort of expanding and happening. I'm getting asked to do more things. I think the country's opening up a little bit. I think there's going to be more conferences happening. Uh, uh, so hopefully some 
reach seminars will will start. There's a there's an interesting conference coming up in uh, Ashland, Oregon, on April 24th, and I think I'm going to go up for the day if I can swing it with my do, uh, people who are due. It's a Healthy Immunity 2021, and it's got a world class group of scientists, including Bob Sears, a local pediatrician down here. Paul Thomas is speaking. My friend Jen Margulis is a speaker. And uh, it's a cutting edge health conference about vaccines, toxic overload, and autoimmunity. So I thought it'd be really interesting to, to go. Together, we will discuss the path forward out of COVID-19 and into good health. That sounds awesome. Right. And I think it's live. So yeah, I think you probably can do it virtually as well. But I want to, I've been invited up there not to speak. So that's kind of fun for me to go to a conference and not speak. So um, think- go somewhere. Fun to just, just go, go somewhere. somewhere with and you how was your week my week was also without births this week so it's been um yeah lots of time around the fire and um supporting my friend that we talked about who um lost her husband i've been spending a lot of time with her and her family um it's been good still looking for my rv um so anybody has leads on a on a cute little RV. I'm looking for a class C RV. It's gotta happen soon. And no births for you? No, I didn't have any births this week. Okay. Yeah. Just... Well, that was good because we had a lot of things that we were working on together um, behind the scenes. So that was good that we had the time to do we it. We did. I, I did something really fun yesterday. Really fun? Yes. For geek. <laughs> self-proclaimed geek. Yes. Yeah. Self-proclaimed fun. geek. I went, um, my friend Robin Poole, she's a midwife colleague of ours. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is interesting. We, we, like she's looking into the possibility of getting certain equipment in her birth center to do things that are not necessarily related to birth, but possibly doing things like D's and C's for women with incomplete miscarriages rather than having to send them to the hospital. Now, she can't do them, I can do them. So I said, well, she was going to go look at machines for that. And then, so we, we went down to the supply house down in Gardenia. It's about an hour drive. And it was like a kid, I was like a kid in a candy store. <laughs> okay. They have such cool old equipment. If you wanted to film a movie about the 1950s Martians invading earth or something, they have these little things you can do and the little lines go, they had all kinds of cool. Too bad you cool didn't take equipment. any pictures. Oh, I did take pictures of the, of the, of the, um, Exam tables, the because exam tables. no, well, there there were some new ones too, uh-huh. and I and I thought, geez, it would be nice to have one of these in my office, but I know that the midwives I work with will never let me do it, so because <laughs> it has stirrups on them, and I think that midwives have an allergy to stirrups, don't they? <laughs> an allergy, um, yeah, it just kind of puts you into that more medicalized mindset, and um, I think that we're trying to to help people know that. It's not a medicalized event. But they had they had every instrument. You know, I I'd always bought all my stuff online from you know vendors like Cooper Surgical or whatever, not knowing that this place existed. I could have saved a fortune mm-hmm. when I first set up my practice by going to one of these places. So I ended up going there to help Robin pick out the equipment that she needed, and I ended up spending five hundred and fifty dollars myself <laughs> because I bought I bought a microscope. I bought like a two thousand dollar microscope for four hundred four hundred fifty dollars. And I, I've always wanted one again because the last one I had broke and I never got it fixed. But with a microscope, I can do wet smears in the office. Which I've always done that up until the time I moved from my old Century City office. And you can look at ferning if you want to look at ferning, but mostly for yeast and for um, flu cells and things for bacterial vaginosis. I can, I can make that diagnosis now in my office. I don't necessarily have to send things out, which is nice. Which is nice. It's mm-hmm. cheaper. And it's more instant. So yeah. You get an instant answer. Yeah. Um, and then when I was with Robin at that store, um, I, I saw like colposcopes, which I don't have, but they're all a little too big for the space that I'm in. But I described to her one that sits on a little base and really doesn't take up much space. It goes, it's like a stick and you can move it around. And, and so when she was done there, I left. Okay. Robin, because she's a kook, went to their other store. And while she was shopping there, she found a colposcope for a hundred bucks. <laughs> so I bought it sight on scene because I trust Robin. So I got a colposcope now, which is great because I don't really have very many paps that require colposcopy anymore. My population isn't like that, the ones I'm dealing with. But every now and then I do. And it's really awkward for me as an OB to have to say, 
well, you need a DNC or you need a, you need a colposcopy and I can't do it. Can you tell our listeners what colposcopy is? Yeah, in simple terms, colposcopy is a microscope on a stick. And what colposcopy is, it comes to the difference between specificity and sensitivity. And a lot of people know what that is and some people don't, so let me go through that. A sensitive test is a test that's positive when something is wrong. Okay. Ideal example of that would be the metal detector at the airport, all right? Picks up guns, everybody that's got a gun is gonna, it's gonna go off, okay? A, a, a test that has specificity is a test that's negative when nothing is wrong, okay? Mm -hmm. So the metal detector, high sensitivity, crappy specificity, belt buckles, keys, whatever, all right? So in an ideal situation, you want a test that's both sensitive and specific. But every time you add specificity, you add labor and cost. It's true in all, pretty much all testing. So that's why a pap smear is a really good screening test because a pap smear has high sensitivity, but not great specificity, right? It's not always negative when nothing is wrong. It can sometimes have false positive. With colposcopy, that's an ideal test because you're looking directly at the cervix, putting certain stains on the cervix, you can actually see if there's lesions. And that's one of the, if I can say this, that's one of the beauties of cervical disease is that it's visible. It's not like ovarian cancer, breast cancer, it's inside your body. Right. Cervical disease is on the surface of your cervix, it's visible, yeah. you can't miss it really. So the colposcopy would be the ideal screening test for all women instead of an annual pap smear, except that it's labor intensive and it costs more. So it makes a lousy screening test because people won't do it. Mm -hmm. So now when somebody gets an abnormal pap smear, if it's minimally abnormal, you just say basically come back in six months, we'll repeat it. That would be something like what's called an ASCUS pap smear. ASCUS is an acronym that stands for atypical squamous cells of undetermined significance. It sounds like something out of a science fiction movie or something too. But if it comes back mild dysplasia or undeterminate or cannot rule out or whatever else, then you do what's, you take them and do the colposcopy. Just like at the airport, if you go through the metal detector and it goes beep, 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 or it says, they, the man says then, excuse me, sirs, step over here. And then they do something more sensitive, like they'll pat you down or they'll take the little wand and go around your body and they'll check you out. So, but they, if they did that with everybody, that would be more time consuming. So they now got tests. Now, of course, the airports getting tests that are also sensitive and specific, like those things where you put your arms up and- Yeah, I don't like those, but that's another podcast. Get irradiated. <clears throat> yeah, don't right. like those. So do you ask for the, you ask for the body search? Cause you can oh. bypass those. <laughs> Another podcast. Oh, all right, all right. <laughs> we'll forget. We'll forget another podcast. Um, I have asked for that, and um, they then they really like make it a thing. They, Just they, to piss you off. I think to like, yeah, not maybe not to piss you off, but to deter you from doing it in the future because it becomes, you know, they have to bring over a woman and she puts on gloves and she touches every part of your body and it's, you know, it is. It's and if you're, you know, wanting to just go to your get on your plane it's really kind of a deterrent yeah yeah it's been so long since i well i've, I've only flown twice in the last year yeah i went to hawaii which is so hawaii. rare because usually i'm flying almost every month yeah or every other month yeah it's not great so that's that's what it, but anyway it was really cool and, and and robin has this thing about her place which she buys all these sort of uh vintage uh -huh. mm -hmm. vintage type stuff and so Everything she has is really cool. So the, I, I'm kind of excited to see my um, my colposcope. It'll probably look like something out of the Jetsons or something like that. <laughs> awesome. But so, yeah, but I'll, I'll have to bring it over to the office. I'll have to like put it behind the curtain or someplace like that. But at least I'll have it. And it makes me feel a little bit more complete. That is an obstetrician. You can use, you can use your skills that you should be able to. Uh... And what I can also offer to a lot of our midwife colleagues here is an option of being and I'm not trying to promote myself, but I am promoting myself because I do good work. And you I do. But I make I make it easy for these people to come and do it without fear. They can yeah. they can come in and not be nervous. So if if a, the midwife gives an abnormal pap smear and then sends them off to an OB someplace or I mean to an office someplace, it's a big deal. They got to go through all that stuff. I'm going to make it very smooth for them. Yeah. And then a DNC too is also very personal, intimate thing. Whether it's an abortion or whether it's an incomplete miscarriage. Or whether it's a, a you know the, the sadness of a blighted ovum yeah. or a fetal demise early, 
Uh, so up to 10 weeks, we'll be able to do them um, in a setting that you're not walking into a place that's like a clinic. No, it's it's a it's a really beautiful thing. And I'm gonna miss having you as a resource for sure. But we should well, where talk am I going? about I'm going somewhere. I'm going on my RV. Yeah, but you're you you but you're coming back eventually, or you're never coming back. I'm not coming back to oh, LA. Oh god. <laughs> what? Are you just getting this? No, I I I'm yeah. not coming I didn't, back to I didn't, LA. Be, I didn't believe you. Yeah. You're gonna be in Northern California. Right? I'm gonna be in Northern California. But you're gonna stay in California. So far. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we should get to our topic. Um, so Stu, what is the difference between home and hospital since you li- you've lived in both worlds? Oh my God. <laughs> That's such a broad question. Yeah. Let's okay. see if we can um, do it in 15 to Well, <laughs> okay. Um, first, you have to start at the beginning and look at how, how the different models. Home, home birthing is a midwifery model and hospital birthing is a medical physician model. And the whole, the difference is night and day. Mm -hmm. And it has to start with how the two models look at birth. Right. So when I'm talking about home, I'm also talking about um, midwife. And when I'm talking about hospital, I'm generally talking about obstetrician. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So obstetricians look at birth as an illness. They look at, we're taught in residency and medical school residency mainly. We're taught that that pregnancy is something that needs to be treated, that women are patients, and that modern medicine is the savior of the human species. That's really what we're taught. Um, that we need to uh, that pregnancy is a t- ticking time bomb that can go wrong at any time. And so, what happens in that model is that we, as practitioners, are inundated with fear and anxiety and medical legal concerns. And um, so we, we over-treat pretty much everything. And I would say that about 80% of pregnant women don't need any medical care whatsoever. They need prenatal care, which is a different story, but they don't need medical care. And OBs are highly trained in high-risk and problematic pregnancies. And yet in our, med- in our model in the United States, 97, 98% of women are delivering in a hospital setting. So you have obstetricians taking care of women, most, most all women, but they're really only trained to take care of the 10 to 20% who have problems. The other 80% are being cared for by somebody that's really high risk. It's the analogy that, that a lot of people use that say if having an obstetrician attend a normal birth is like having a pediatric neurosurgeon babysit your two-year-old, right? You, you're overqualified to do birthing because you feel like you need to do something. And then the model, of course, is set up so that there's no time. The, the, the economic model interferes with the ability of doctors to give patients the time that they need and, and listen to them and talk about things like nutrition and rest and stress reduction and all those things. It's sort of a quick visit. Most of you who've gone through the obstetric model know what I'm talking about. You don't have the time to... Um, ask questions about things that might be matter because the doctor's in the room and out of the room. And, and so that model is, is treating you as if you're ill and therefore you come to the hospital and you sign documents about surgery and death and you get an IV and you pee in a cup and you change into a hospital gown and you're not allowed to eat much and you maybe get a popsicle and then you get in bed and you have to be monitored because the babies could, even though the babies have been in your belly for nine months doing fine, the minute you walk into the hospital, the hospital's not liable for them. So suddenly those babies could, could crump and then the hospital will be sued. So do you have to wear monitors the whole time? I mean, again, crump. crump. That's a term. <laughs> what, what is the term? Does it stand for something? No, it's just oh. like, that's, that's a medical term that we use. In, really? It's in, a medical term? Well, it's a, it, it's, a, it's a slang term that we use in, in, in residency. Okay. okay. Yeah. It's like it's like PPP, you know. It's the PPP stands for Mm-mm. piss poor protoplasm. <laughs> no, I don't. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, we, residents have a lot of these things. If you mm-hmm. read House of God or something like that, there's an old book that came out mm-hmm. about Harvard, about you know uh, Harvard Medical School. Uh, there's a lot of slang in there. So crumping means that they go down the toilet, which is another slang term. 
<laughs> we just have a lot terrible. of them. The baby goes down the toilet. Or, okay. mom, or mom. Okay. But they're, they're expecting that to go on. And so you're immobilized, you're inter interrupted. Um, now in this, in the time that we live in right now, you're, you very much might be isolated. Things are opening up a little bit, but for a long time, your husband might be able to be allowed. Your doula wasn't allowed. Um, you'd be, you'd be isolated. That's the, that's the hospital model. And the hospital model has taken us from a C-section rate in 1970 of about 5% to a C-section rate in 2021 of about 32%, maybe 30%, whatever. It's a 500% increase in the cesarean section rate with no actual decrease in the rate of cerebral palsy or neonatal death or hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, which I guess is the same thing really as cerebral palsy. Mm -hmm. um, pointing to something um and so you know you're talking about like our statistics being here in this country um we'd think that we were doing better but what we're finding is in other countries where midwives are the ones who take care of normal healthy low-risk moms actually statistically are doing much better than we are yeah i mean there's really good data about that but of course that data is generally ignored now i'm th this is not a session to say that that hospitals aren't necessary because clearly they're necessary, but the model by which they care for most women is totally overblown and totally unnecessary, but yet they won't let go. They cannot let go. It's a, you know, the people that are actually providing the care and maybe understand this have almost no power in decision-making and how hospitals do their thing. So hospitals take their cues from risk managers and administrators and trends that run when one hospital decides to ban VBAC, they all start to ban VBAC. When one hospital, uh, you know, has continuous fetal monitoring, they all have continuous fetal monitoring. It's sort of, I don't know whether there's a, like a, a journal of hospital administrators or something like that, that they put out a journal, they write articles, and suddenly all these things happen in the same way all through the country. But they've forgotten that one of the themes of our podcast, which is how we birth matters. And they look, they're looking at the end result as the only thing that matters. And they're not looking at the journey at all. And many, many people who go to the hospital go there because that's all they've been told or all they thought that the only option they had, or because, because maybe they feel it's safest. But I think that once people, if people are given true informed consent, then a, a good majority of them would think, you know, that's really not for me, but they're not given that they're given fear instead or ignorance, mm -hmm. right? And the fear doesn't come in the, in, from the women, the fear comes from the physicians themselves. Oh, and, and just the culture. It's projected onto the, mm -hmm. into our culture, mm -hmm. right? We know that because we know that women who don't go into the medical model, like we have like Amish or women in other countries where you know, most women deliver at home, they don't fear birth. They may even know somebody who died in childbirth and yet they don't fear birth. It's part of their normal, process is a normal function of their body and they know that and it's their life cycle. And so they look at it much differently than we look at it. And hospitals have done this on purpose since about the 20s or 30s. They have taken over because 100 years ago, almost everyone delivered at home. Before the 1900s. Right. Well, you, even, even up to nine, about 1920, I think. Do you know? Well, it, I, I looked at the statistics. Okay, good. And I think one day we can uh, do a podcast just, just more in detail about how this happened, because it's a lot to talk about. But um, in 1921, 1935, 37% um, of all women were delivering in the hospital. In 1925, 37%? Mm -hmm. Oh, wow, in, I didn't think it got, went up that fast. And in 1950, it was 88%. Right. So what happened between 1937, was it 37 or 27? 1935. So what happened from 30, between 35 and 50? What, 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 what went on that made it go from 37 to 88? It just started to become the norm where um, they believed that it was um, cleaner and safer for the middle class to be delivering in the hospital. And they went on a purposeful campaign to vilify the other option. Yeah. Do you know the name of the doctor that that did that started all of that? I didn't know this. Dr. DeLee. Oh. Yeah. He wrote a paper um, in 1915 that said that birth was not a normal function of the body and midwives had no place in childbirth. And then he's the one who started all of the 
episiotomies, um, uh, forcep deliveries, ether, all of that was was that he believed that. Well, that's misinformation. He should be banned from the internet. <laughs> is he, he still, should be is, canceled. Is he still publishing? Is Can we he, cancel him? Yeah, is he still publishing right now? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Oh. Um, yeah, he yeah. Could, well, Delia is the guy that came up with the little suction thing, too. Right. So, I didn't know that. Yeah. And he also said that birth is um, I pathological. Are, I, think there, I think there might be forceps in there. there might be. Yeah. He said that birth is pathological and that few babies and moms escape birth without damage. And so it's our job as physicians to go save them from from this fascinating damage. That's fascinating. Yeah. I didn't I didn't actually know that that was a quote of his. Yeah. So we'll go we'll go more into the history in one of our future podcasts because it really is fascinating. Anyway, so that that's sort of what happened. That's the hospital model in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. It's really good for people that really need it, and it's okay for people that feel that they more comfortable there. But I think people should be given because we're on the podcast here. We're really advocates of informed consent. Yes, we are. And the right of consent or to refusal and autonomy and individual decision making. And individual decision making almost has no place in the medicalized model of birth because everything is run on, as I say all the time, and it's an algorithm. Friedman, who did the Friedman curve, People might know that. They're uh, all men, by the way. Well, this was all men. It was an all men specialty back in the. You back know in the why? Day. Well, women were barefoot and pregnant. I don't know. Why. Yeah, we weren't allowed to. Yeah. We were, a lot of us were illiterate. We weren't allowed to learn. So I was so, close. So yeah. I was close. <laughs> so we got kind of pushed out. So Friedman yeah. is a classic, the classic thing that people use in labor and delivery, and they still do in many hospitals, which should be thrown out. And okay. there's been there's been some a movement even by ACOG to, to not call active labor certain things and whatever, but they had curves for primips and curves for multips. And if a, a woman needed to be checked and found, found out where she fell on the curve. So in order to do that, first of all, you had to do vaginal exams every two hours, which of course we now know leads to, first of all, it's uncomfortable and then it also leads to more infections. But the idea that Dr. Friedman initially thought, I think he thought at the end of his career that it was a stupid thing, but initially thought that all, all first-time moms should dilate at the same rate. Like, who, who thinks that way? Nobody, nobody had the cojones to stand up, because it was only men standing up in those days, <laughs> to say, excuse me, Dr. Freeman, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. You know, we're all a little different, and labor's progressed differently, and stuff like that. But no, and it was immediately, it's one of those things like the term breach trial that was immediately adopted because it met the model by which people wanted to practice. They thought it was going to improve things. And they tend to throw these things out there and without testing them, without doing any sort of small studies or trying them in, a, in one little area, it becomes universally accepted worldwide. And led as that and continuous fetal monitoring were the two things that led um, probably the biggest lead from the 5% C-section rate 50 years ago to the um 32 section rate that we have now it's all about control i think that it is about control but i think initially it might more have been well yeah they were control freaks mm -hmm. but it might have been about they thought it might have been a good idea but good ideas are often not good ideas mm -hmm. and they should often be you should test out your good ideas in a small little world first before you universally do that we have a lot of that going on and Sacramento and Washington and probably every other state and country that you who people sure. listening to. I'm sure ego had something to do with but how it. How is well. it that how is it that our leaders all are so dumb? How is it that they do such dumb things and never take responsibility for them? That's a good question. I know. Sure okay, so, off, I'm going off, I'm going off topic. No, not again. you. <laughs> Um, okay, so that's why she's the best co-host in the business. She keeps me on track. Do you want to talk about what had? Well, you... Why don't you talk about home? Because I've been doing talking, and you, yeah, you've been doing peanut gallery. <laughs> um. So why home? Um. Because you can be in your own um environment. You are in control. So if you want to go in your room and close the door and labor on your own in a dark space, you can do that. 
we haven't really addressed the mammalian model yet, but um, we really believe that birth is a physiologic function of the body, just like any other mammal. And uh, our bodies respond hormonally to feeling safe and um, unwatched. So that's a lot easier to do in your own environment to feel comfortable and safe and to invite people in that you feel comfortable with, which is really important. Um, so you can eat, you can walk around, you can uh, change positions in the ways that you want to. Uh, midwives and Dr. Stu, <laughs> there's not many Dr. Stu's doing home birth. Um, there's a couple of new ones that we talked about last week. Which I mean, is Dr. Great. Flores is starting to do them. Uh, our friend, Nathan Riley, possibly going to be doing them out in Tennessee or Kentucky. Great, great. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a handful, right? Yeah. I got to get Brad Boots Taylor to, to, to move into that realm, but I don't think he's going to do it. Can I cheer him on? Yeah. Um, so Tal yeah. Talented man. Yeah. So we, um, we use intermittent monitoring, which um, we use a handheld Doppler to be able to monitor what's going on with um, with the baby. This is more of a professional midwifery skill, I think. Um, I don't, you know, that's not necessarily something that direct entry lay midwives, traditional historical midwives are always monitoring the baby. They're more being with um, the woman and letting things unfold the way that they would naturally unfold, right? With lots of probably traditional hands-on skills if they feel like something is going wrong. I think a lot of the things that midwives do in their protocols are put in place in order to satisfy some person higher up who's in an administrative position who makes rules for them. Well, it's become a profession, which it starts to change the way that it was done since the beginning of time. I mean, you guys are supposed to check their blood pressure how often? Uh, every six hours, two okay. vitals. Right. Yeah. All right. That's not terrible. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, how often does someone come into labor with a normal blood pressure and end up having a, a real blood pressure problem? Oh, very rare. Right. But you know, that's the thing about midwifery is we're we're dealing with normal, healthy women, and uh, so we don't see babies and moms who've had good prenatal care, good nutrition, are you know healthy going from great to not great all of a sudden. Right. That is a perspective of our culture because we're looking at birth through the lens of hospital birth. And what happens in the hospital is that we're not respecting this normal physiologic process and the flow of hormones and respecting a woman's ability to understand and know what's happening within herself. We're adding things in like IVs and medications and epidurals and um, pitocin and all of those things can cause a mom or a baby to all of a sudden be fine and then not fine. Um, yeah, well, as the podcast progresses, and people that are new to listening, will you'll start to hear some of my philosophy about, about epidurals, about the way we treat women in the hospital, about about delayed cord clamping about some of the, the silliness of rules. Um, and, and one of my favorite rules is that anytime someone tells you that there's an exact number for something, they're lying. Okay. So when they say 24 hours of ruptured membranes is, oh, you have to deliver before that, or, you know, you have uh, uh, one minute of delayed cord clamping or because nature doesn't work that way. Yeah. It's organic. Yeah. It's even organic when we, even, process. I mean, even now the, the whole, I mean, I've been ragging on the whole six feet thing for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And just recently this week, they came out with the idea that there's, there's no evidence that six feet is better than three feet. Okay. And, and you I, can get a little closer. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just saying, when, when people tell you things with such a surety that there's an exact number, like 42 weeks or whatever else. When it comes to nature. Yeah, nature yeah, doesn't work that nature way. Nature doesn't work that way. Yeah. Bacteria don't know 24 hours. <laughs> and I always say um, that birth and time do not should not exist in the same space. It's sunrises and sunsets. There's no real reason, as you were mentioning the Friedman curve and all of that, you know, different things happen in different time. And sometimes it is, you know, um, that the baby's in an abnormal position or something's going on that we have to peel apart so that the, the dysfunction that's happening in the labor can start to... Uh, like remedy itself, get get in balance or homeostasis, yeah, and, right? And, con and contrary to what Dr. DeLee, we described it, <laughs> um, 
I like Sarah Buckley's description of what labor should be like, which is safe, quiet, and unobserved. Yeah. And like a mammal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing that another day I'll go through my whole mm -hmm. mammalian birth thing, but that's how mammals do it. And so wherever you feel safest, that's where you should be. Mm -hmm. But you also, no matter where you are, that you feel safe, it needs to be quiet and you're better off being unobserved because mammals don't do well when they're observed. So being at home, even met, even more so than a, than a freestanding birth center, being at home, you can be yourself yeah, and you can be quiet and you can be unobserved and you can feel safe. Yeah. Uh, and you, and as you said, you can eat your own food and you can eat when you feel like it and not when they bring it to you or, you know, or you don't have to beg for it. So that all sounds great, Stu, but what if something happens and you're not what at the hospital? What if something goes wrong? Yeah, which we get asked all the time. So okay. we're going to quickly cover that because we've got some other things we want to Okay, well, about again, today. it gets back to but. the model by which we care for people. The whole midwifery model tends to, to pre preach wellness and keep you, people well. And if people aren't well by the time they get toward the term, they probably will be transferred out of care. So the midwives have this the advantage of cherry picking their clients more so than we in OB do mm -hmm. in the hospital setting. And that's certainly a, that's apples don't eat equal oranges, but because we generally start, and I'm not talking about me, we'll talk about me some other day about twins and breaches and things like that. Mm -hmm. But in general, we're talking about home birthing in general. So you're cherry picking your clients, you have healthy clients. And when you have healthy women going into labor spontaneously because you haven't induced them and you haven't messed with them and you haven't done anything else, the likelihood that you're going to see a rapid deterioration in the maternal well-being or the fetal well-being in that scenario is extremely rare. Less than 1%. Far less than 1%. Mm -hmm. It's extremely rare. Sometimes after the birth, there'll be hemorrhaging or the baby won't transition well. And that's a different story. But let's talk about laboring because that's where people get rushed to the emergency, rushed to the OR to get that emergency C-section. Thank God. Right. And, and thank God we had that. What would you have done if you'd been at home? Right. And we don't see that. And, and part of that comes from my whole theory about epidurals. And I'll talk about that in another podcast too. I'm just teasing you. So you'll stay tuned, spread the word, share, share. And if you're liking what we're talking about, please share it with your friends and subscribe to it and give us a, a good rating, that sort of thing. But the idea that when you start with healthy people, that you're going to see this sudden deterioration is very unlikely because it's a natural process. And when the baby starts to have a little problem, like you start to hear variables on your Doppler or the mother's uh, temperature goes up, or you can see these things coming from hours generally away. And you yeah. can then pull the husband out or the mom and you have a talk with them and say, listen, the baby's heart rate's going up a little bit. You've been six centimeters now for a while or you haven't really seemed to progress much. Let's give me a couple more hours. Let's see what happens. But if in nothing, a couple hours, we hear something different, then we might have to go to the hospital. And those sorts of transports are all by car. They're not anything, but they're not ambulance transports or like car, like any other pregnant woman who planned to deliver in the hospital is technically a home birth transport, mm -hmm. unless she's being induced. Because every woman that goes into labor generally goes into labor at home. And stays and home and until- they, they And they call their obstetrician. Their obstetrician tells them when to come and they come in, usually too early, but they come in. <laughs> And um, so you're transferring while you're in labor. So it's really not a whole lot different. So people have to get that through their head that, that the models are different. And so the outcomes are different. And you're using a different, you're getting a different population of, of clients who are generally healthier. And of course, there's a big difference on other podcasts we'll talk about too, prime ips versus multips. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, they are, you know, I jokingly, lovingly say that they're different species because they really are. Because with a multip, when a, when a midwife, I'm sure you're all nodding right now. When a midwife has a multip client, she's like going, because ah, you know that that's going to be successful. Yeah. And if you're and it's going to be faster, if you're a mom listening to this, what is a multip and what is a prime up? Prime up is a first someone who's delivering for the first time. A multip is someone who has already delivered one or more babies. Vaginally. Vaginally. Not right. by cesarean. So right. You could have somebody could be who a mother, but not necessarily be a multip. That's correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We call, we call, I, I use the term functional primate for a woman that, say, had a C section for her first birth that's now pregnant again. So that's really the difference. I mean, the difference is night and day. And it isn't for everybody. And you're right. There's so much more to talk about. So you're yeah. like, how are we going to talk about this in 20 my minutes? Home, my home, <laughs> my old meme, my old famous meme is home birth isn't for everybody, but informed decision making is. Yep. And yep. that's what, and people, 
unfortunately, most women never get informed decision-making because they're never given information. And you can't make an informed decision about what your choices will be if you don't have both sides of the coin. Now, how do you get informed consent from somebody who has bias? It's hard, all right? Liz and I both have bias, but we, but we are confident in our position and we are not haters of the opposite position. So therefore, we're free to talk about what the advantages of home birth, the advantages of hospital birth, all right? We, we, we're not trying to hide it, but we, you, obviously everyone knows our bias, but most of my colleagues in the hospital world have had, maybe they've had to deal with a home birth transport that didn't go well, or maybe they've just heard rumors or they've never attended a home birth, they have no idea how could a woman possibly give birth without an anesthesiologist and a pediatric and a, and a NICU team available. I mean, it's not possible. Yeah. And I, have to, I can say from my own experience, the first when I was first asked to come and do home births, back in 2010, I was sort of a little like a little like, a little reluctant to like, I don't know, how do you do that without, you know, all the bells and whistles? Yeah. But fortunately, the first five to 10 that I went to were unbelievably beautiful, smooth, mostly multips, some primips. Yeah, mostly that's how it is. Right. Yeah. On the floor, in the tub, on the bed sometimes. Um, the first one I ever had was she was leaning against the couch on her in the living room on her floor. I still remember it. Yeah. Heidi. <laughs> it was my first home birth. And, and um, fortunately, it went well because I, I, I can't imagine what it would have been like if it's been like some of my, <laughs> my, recent, <laughs> my recent home births, which have been, uh, we'll be talking about those in the future podcasts as well, because not everything goes great at home. And that's, that's obviously true. But, the, but again, but, one of the things that's never, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, but we come with things we're not, you know, I think the, the perspective of a midwife sometimes is that we're just like, you know, lighting up Palo Santo in our Birkenstocks and like, you know, like in a seance or something, we come with equipment and we are, you know, here in California, we're licensed by the medical board. So it's the same licensing board that licenses OBs. Shouldn't be, but it is. Yeah. But we, and we carry, you know, oxygen, we carry anti-hemorrhagic drugs. We're trained in the same algorithm and, and hands-on skills to help a baby transition as they are in the hospital. We have IVs, we have antibiotics. So we have a lot of skills to be able to manage the normal, you know, potential complications that would happen in a birth. So we're not just like waiting for something to happen and then going to the hospital. If we need to, we have a lot of skills, but I tell people when they come to interview with me, look, you are a mammal and you could deliver your baby with your, you're designed to deliver your baby with no one around. And most of the time, statistically, that's going to go well we are like another level of insurance so that if something does go outside of the range of normal, which happens in a very small percentage of the time, we're there to either use our skills or to say, this is something that we need to go. Um, and that's, that's why they would hire us. So. Yeah. And one of the things that's really not considered in the medical model, I mean, they may pay lip service to it, but they really don't consider it is the emotional and psychological well-being of the mother. All right. Their mission is to get the baby safely into the bassinet. And, this, and, not, and, and again, I'm not talking about the individual physician who may be as nurturing and as caring as possible. I'm talking about the model by which they're forced into. A lot of really good people are working in that model, but their, their hands are tied behind their back. Mm -hmm. They want to offer certain things, but the, there's no time to do it, or the hospital has a policy against it, or if they try to say, offer a VBAC in a hospital that frowns on VBACs, they, the, the patient may get the VBAC, but the doctor will be, end up in a meeting the following week um, with the medical executive committee or something like that. You know, so it, it, it's not conducive to, to running your life the way that you want to run your life because most people just want to go home to their, they want to make a good living, they want to do good work, go home to their families, Nobody goes home at night, you know, and says, honey, guess what? I did six unethical things today. Okay. <laughs> they, don't, they don't think like that. Yeah. Right. But the system puts them in a position like that. So they keep their head down and they don't stand up because people like me who stand up or like David Hayes or like Brad Boots Taylor, any of these people that stand up, we end up getting beaten with a stick. 
Yeah, and, that, that, and, and eventually they either we either conform or we resign and move on to do something different because we cannot function in a world that doesn't allow us to do the things that we're trained to do. Maybe they're not training people anymore to do these certain things, but that I'm trained to do. And then ethically is my obligation to give these women those choices and then let them decide. Right. And I think one of the things that you're pointing to is that a lot of, you know, anything in a, we know, right. People, common sense, which is part of what this podcast is about. If you're in a corporation, which a lot of these hospitals are big, large managed businesses. So the majority of the decisions that are being made are not individualized about what's happening with that baby and mom. It's about bottom line, risk management, insurance, and, and what you're talking about, about like your peer pressure to conform to something that, you know, keeps things um, status quo. Yeah. I mean, there are physicians I know in our community who would love to support midwifery and back up and take transports, but their partners won't let them. Yeah. I had a doctor like that who was backing me for a while. And then unfortunately, we both know who we're talking about. His partner said no more. So that was too bad because it was really good. Uh, right. And you have to live with your family. You know, you have to get along with your family and your partners are your family. So right. you have to make choices. And unfortunately, it shouldn't be that way. It, it really shouldn't be that way. You know, I don't know if we have time to go into this a letter because mm -hmm. it, it, it's sort of on that same subject of, of you know, who's available, who's not available, that sort of thing. So, and I just want to summarize quickly that um, this has just a, been an overview of the difference between home and hospital. It's not to uh, praise one and condemn the other, whatever else. There are times where either one are, are necessary, but people should have an understanding of what they are. They should not be told that the silly things like, well, home deliveries for pizza only or some stupid, uh, ridiculous thing that, that's pejorative like that because home birth is a real reasonable option in, in many parts of the world. Um, it is praised far more than this. A lot of people don't have any choice for hospital birthing. In some countries, hospital birthing is actually more dangerous than home birthing. You need to have the choice. And then for every individual with their own backstory, their own life experiences should be able to make the decision of where they want to go without being ridiculed or being inundated with fear. Agreed? Agreed. Uh, Okay. <laughs> All right. So now I'm, I'm just going to do a little segment that I think I'm going to do every week um, because there's so much of it that I'm going to call it the dumb doctor dogma section, where something that's been told to women or said to women or things that I've heard in a letter or in an interview in my office or something. And I'm not, and the reason I call it the dumb doctor dogma section is because it's not necessarily the doctor that's dumb. It could be the dogma that's dumb. Mm-hmm. But it could be the doctor that's dumb. <laughs> so um, I just wanted the dumb to apply to either one. And, and uh, because some doctors deserve to be labeled as dumb. I don't even want to go into the maliciousness or anything like that. But there are, I mean, most of my colleagues are good people who would really like to do good work. Um, but the system doesn't allow them. And we'll, that'll be a constant theme that we'll have about what's going on in the medical world. I'm going to give you a little bit of praise. Okay. They also don't have the cojones to stand up for what's right. And you do. And that's one of the things I've always respected about you is that, you know, even though it's been hard for you professionally in, in sometimes to like have to figure out a new way, you keep standing up for what's right. And um, I think that sometimes that just doesn't happen in general in the world so simple thank you yeah That's good. Great. okay so this is from marissa it's a letter and she writes i live in northern california and will be delivering my mono diet twin girls at kaiser santa rosa in sonoma county i wanted to reach out and see if you have happen to have any doulas you can recommend to reach out to hire for my birth who are experienced with twin births that's not why i'm reading this okay but <laughs> i have already had a full-term complicated Complication-free vaginal delivery three years ago. So that makes her a? Multip. Multip. What's the success rate with multips and twins in my practice? Oh, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, 98%. 98%. And one out of a little over 50 sets of twins not be successful who are multips. Okay. Uh, three years ago. And my birth goal for this twin birth is another vaginal birth. Also, baby A, who is lower, is head down and has been in this entire pregnancy when checked. 
But baby B has been head up for the last four weeks and doesn't seem to be moving. Despite chiropractic care and spinning babies, I will just make a comment on that, that it's hard. really hard to get <laughs> babies when they're twins to move. Yeah. I've tried a couple of times in my career to do external version on twin A, uh, that was breach. Um, that was before I was actually doing breach first twin vaginal delivery. So, mm -hmm. so um, and it's it, it never it never succeeded. I mean, it possibly could succeed, but it's not likely. I don't know that spinning babies is going to be working because you're just as likely to make baby A spin as you yeah. are maybe baby B. Yeah, I don't know spin, how you so. do. Yeah, right. Breathe. They are telling me that's Kaiser. That is that due to baby B being breach, it makes my chances of having a vaginal delivery slim to none. pausing for effect <laughs> okay the reason i'm pausing for effect is because i often talk about the core skills of being an obstetrician and one of the absolute core skills of being an obstetrician is to know how to do a second twin breach all right if all you can do is c-section for a second twin breach you're not really an obstetrician all right you can be a general practitioner a general surgeon you can do call yourself whatever you want but my definition of obstetrician, okay, is someone who is skilled and trained in the, in the core skills of obstetrics. We know that breech babies are gonna show up in the hospital. For someone to go through four years of residency, and this is true of all, almost all residency programs in the United States right now, they're not teaching breech skills. That to me is an abomination. It's similar to me, maybe not exactly the same, as somebody who um, teaching, not teaching a surgeon how to take out a gallbladder. They can do appendixes, they can do bowel resections, but they can't do gallbladders. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane that we don't have that. So when they say that to them, that is what I call dumb doctor dogma. Okay, she goes on, being that only a few doctors at Kaiser feel comfortable delivering baby B breach, and it's just, quote, up to luck, unquote, if they're working at that time. Again, another problem with the healthcare system we have right now, which is becoming, is it's becoming more and more of an employee shift mentality where doctors come on at seven in the morning, they go at home at seven at night, or they work at 24 hour and they go home. So they, they're caring for people they've never met before. In the middle of caring for people that they might've gotten to know over the last 24 hours, they go home and, the, and the new, somebody new comes on. How good is that for the confidence and safety and, and continuity for the, for the woman that's laboring? It's not a great system. Makes for a better lifestyle for the doctors, I have to admit. It's a better lifestyle when you're working on it. But I can't believe it's professionally as satisfying as seeing things through to the end. Yeah. Working at that time, which doesn't feel right to me. Good for you, Marissa. Doesn't feel right to me either. Are you aware of any fellow doctors up here in Sonoma County who have breach experience like you that I can ask to be brought in or assist potentially? I'm just trying to make sure I advocate for myself and my girls, good for you, and try to have the vaginal birth I know we can safely have. I've received numerous recommendations from fellow twin moms about how amazing and experienced and educated you are. Oh, thank you, twin moms. That's why he's reading this one. No, thank I'm just kidding. Thank, no, it's not. I actually <laughs> forgot that that was it. I wish we lived closer to you and could have been seeing you through this pregnancy or have your support uh, support come birth. Thank you for your time, Marissa. Uh, uh, Sign, Marissa. I did give her the name of somebody that's up in Sutter Davis, who's a hospital-based physician, but she's not Kaiser. That's what I'm saying. So the problem is if you have Kaiser, and you want to get a vaginal uh, twin birth, you're, you're, going to have, you're going to have to pay out of pocket. And the problem is when you sign up for Kaiser, people sign up because economically it's either what it's either cheaper for them or it's what their employer offers. Mm -hmm. And they don't have a lot of choice and we don't look into it. And, you know, sometimes you get what you pay for. And the problem with, uh, with the Kaiser system is that they run very much on an algorithm. I mean, they don't want anyone to go past 41 weeks. And they want everyone to have vitamin K and everyone to have erythromycin and they want everyone to have hepatitis B vaccine. And if you decline any of these things, all right, which is your right, but they will often then label you in the chart as a non-compliant patient. Right. So that's in your record, whatever that means for future. I don't know if it means anything. Maybe it's a badge of honor. For, all <laughs> for us, it is. Yes, for <laughs> us, it is. So, um, so for Marissa, the thing that she can do, she can go out and network, but the other option that I told her she has, which is probably not feasible for her, but she could come down to Los Angeles County and get a bed and breakfast and no, an Airbnb. Yeah, that's the same thing. Or a bed and breakfast. Yeah, an Airbnb or bed and breakfast, or if she has family members down here, stay with them and have her baby down here. But it's not easy to do that. 
and then, and I can't go up there. That's just too far away. So there are many, many midwives in our state who could deliver twins and would do so successfully, but Sacramento made it illegal in 2014. Um, Don't get us. And, and a deal that. with the devil. <laughs> so that's my dumb doctor dogma today is that you have slim to no chance of delivering if baby B is breached. And the, the scariest thing I'll say, the last thing I'll say about that is if they're both head down and they say, okay, we'll deliver you because they're both head down and baby A comes out and then baby B turns to breach, guess what happens? What? You get a C-section. Mm. So not only do you have a vaginal delivery for twin A, and then you have a C-section with twin B. Yeah, that's... And sometimes that happens mm -hmm. when they're both head down. It happened to me just recently. Baby turned yeah. to a different position. Babies can turn. They're sneaky little rascals. <laughs> Mind of their own. Okay, so Bliss, what do you have for us? Well, um, my little segment, I'm going to try and do for you guys every week, and I'm happy to hear ideas if you guys want to send us questions of things that you'd like to hear from me, but I'm going to do um, midwife wisdom. I love that. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes it'll be about food or nutrition, but um, lots of times probably more about the mind, body, spirit connection. Right. I'm going to call it cauldron stuff. <laughs> That's my, that's my thing. So the, the people who are in my care right now, this will sound familiar because I, I reviewed this with a couple of them this week, but um, I was going through some books as I'm getting ready to move and looking at like, what do I really need to take? And this small book I have on my shelf, which I didn't even know how I got it. It came from another practice in San Diego. I don't know. You stole it. I stole it. <laughs> I don't know how that happened, but it's um, Mind Over Labor by Carl Jones. Um, a male. Um, but what he's talking about here, it says, um, whatever affects the inner event of labor effects on uh, labor physiology. So basically the mind following are the most common psychological factors that can impair labor. So I'm going to give you a list. And then um, if you are a mama, you might want to journal for yourself if any of these issues are still affecting you so that you can address them before you go into labor. Um, so an environment unsuitable for spontaneous self-expression, a caregiver, nurse, or other person in the environment with whom you are uncomfortable, excessive fear, strong beliefs that are not conducive to normal birth. Can, can, you, can I stop and ask mm -hmm. you, what, is, what does that one mean? I mean, when, when your care provider has strong beliefs that are not conducive, who, who you, is strong? You. As the birthing person, oh, okay. strong beliefs that are not conducive to normal birth. So if you don't believe in your body, if you don't Got think it. that this is safe, right? Yeah, I just wanted an explanation uh -huh. on that one. Unresolved emotional conflicts about becoming a parent. An emotional conflict or tension between you and your partner. Excessive self-consciousness and or anxiety about performing in a certain way during labor. Insecurity about your body. Excessive modesty or sexual repression. What do you think of that? I think this is a great list. Yeah, the book is a little yellow, so when was it written? <laughs> I'm curious because it's, it's a good list. It's yeah, I mean, it doesn't really change, right? So it looks like it was published in 1987. Okay. Yeah, um, so that's my uh, so, cauldron so, stuff. Yeah, old, <laughs> old, old wisdom, that's really good. I wisdom, think, wisdom. I think that I think that that's what the midwifery model, getting going full circle here, the midwifery model helps prepare you and, uh, and ask you and to um, dialogue with you about those issues. Yeah. Whereas the obstetric model- It's not even a thing. It doesn't even come up. No. Right. Including sexual trauma sometimes, which can really be a barrier, but that's- Right, because there, there's no time in the medical model for someone to bring that stuff up. Just the, because that you can't not handle that in a six minute, eight minute, prenatal visit. But to assume that that's not going to affect the way that a woman has a normal physiologic birth is, is naive. Well, it's not even, it doesn't even enter their consciousness Yeah, as, and a, it's, as an OB. It's because it's all, it's all medical mechanical. Yeah. It's the, the psychological part isn't something that we learned. Now, again, some people bring, come to medical school and residency with that innate knowledge and wisdom inside of them. And they will carry that through. Some of it will get pounded out of them, but but they'll carry that through. Whereas other people who are, you know, in medical school when I used to go, it was, it was you know, it was the calculus people, it was the physics people, it was the you know the the concrete uh, scientific. What's the what's 
the left-sided brain people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the left-sided brain people. The, 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 the psychological stuff, the right-sided brain stuff, the artsy-fartsy, that stuff didn't ever enter into- Artsy-fartsy. Didn't, didn't enter into the minds. I tended to be that kind of person. I loved physics. I hated calculus, but I, but I was okay at it. But I, I loved physics. I loved astronomy. I loved that stuff. I hated sociology. Interesting. Yeah. I loved sociology. Yeah, I hated it. So <laughs> anyway. But, but anyway, that's uh that was a good, that was good. So I think um, Yeah, we might have been a little long-winded, but hopefully it was entertaining enough that we uh, kept you interested. And next week we're gonna talk about um how we came our backstories. Yeah, how we came to be here and how we came to be together. So we hope that you'll join us next week. So until that time, um we'll just say bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram.